This is Both Wonderful and Strange, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Chris Van Howe. We've been away for a few weeks, and I'm very excited for this episode. If you remember in our last episode, Amelia and I recapped part 12. I think to date was probably the flattest episode of Twin Peaks The Return. Today, she and I will be discussing parts 13 and 14, which were spectacular and in retrospect add a lot of weight to part 12. So she and I talked for nearly an hour and a half. So I'm going to get right into it uh, with Amelia. Here we are talking Twin Peaks The Return, parts 13 and 14. Once again, we are joined by Amelia Van Howe. Amelia, welcome back to Both Wonderful and Strange. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, truthfully. (laughs) So today, you and I are going to be discussing parts 13 and 14 of Twin Peaks The Return. Big, big, big meaty episodes. Lots to to dig in here. Um, I'm excited. I, I think that after... The somewhat uneven part 12, which I think you and I agreed while there was some good moments in the return of Audrey was a little uh, left us wanting a little bit. Um, I think 13 and 14 delivered and I'm really excited to uh, to talk with you about them. Me too. Great. So let's jump right in. Uh, part 13. The tagline of the episode is what story is that, Charlie? And before we get into the meat of the episode, I realized something when I watched part 13. I don't know if you have noticed this, but every week as the show starts and we see the Rancho Rosa logo, it's a different, Mm -hmm. it's a different color every week. Oh, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah. It took me a while to get it. And then it might've been 12 or 13. I think it was 13. It's like a very striking green color. Like I, I, when I pictured in my head, I kind of pictured red, um, which seems to make sense. And, uh, but yeah, it was a very striking green color. So then I went and did some internet sleuthing and, and sure enough, different colors all the way through shades of black shades of, you know, shades of gray, shades of red, shades of white, all kinds of different configurations. So just another weird you know, symbolism thing to wrap our minds around that may or may not mean anything. (laughs) So with that out of the way, let's get into part 13. We start, uh, part 13. I'm already laughing, uh, (laughs) in the, uh, the lucky seven insurance office, the party is still going. (laughs) Dougie and the Mitchums are celebrating, there's this really, uh, I forget how the uh, the closed captioning des- described, but it was like jaunty celebratory music. It's really <laughs> like there's whistles and drums and there's a, there, there's the, the Mitchums and Cooper and Sandy, Mandy and Candy are in a conga line floating through the office, having this grand old time leading this parade to uh, battling Bud's office. Uh, meanwhile... Who is not in on the party in this scene, Amelia? 
Tony Tony is not in on the party. <laughs> yeah, so this in is... fact, he's so not in on the party, he's decided to hide behind his desk. <laughs> yes, he shrinks into a little little ball of dread. The the you can see it written all over his face. It's clear now that the responsibility of killing Dougie has fallen to him, and he knows it. Mm-hmm. Um, while this celebration is going on with, in battling Bud's office, the Mitchums are there. I really like how much Bud is enjoying what's going on. Like, you know, he's. I I, I don't know if I expected him to be more professional, but like he's kind of like bobbing and weaving in his chair and he's really excited and Sandy lays out these gifts for him. Uh, do you remember what the three gifts were? The first is a box of money. <laughs> so no, it's a box of Monte Cristo number twos, which are oh fancy cigars. Got it. Got yes. it. Got it. Okay. The, the second and, box. So the second box is uh, monogrammed diamond cufflinks. Yes. And the third box is the keys to his new BMW convertible, which is a matching set with Dougie's. With Dougie's. <laughs> a new car. <laughs> so so he's really into that. And it's a really funny scene because, like, obviously there's this, like, raucous celebration. And then coupled with Anthony's call to Mr. Todd, you know, Dougie's still kicking. He, you know, now he's got an assignment. He's got to He's got to take out Dougie. Um, you know, like highs and lows at the same time, just, you know, feet apart from each other. Dougie is having a blast. <laughs> Anthony is dealing with the fact that he will likely have to commit murder to save his life. Meanwhile, at Dougie's home, Janie E doesn't know where Dougie is. And, uh, but we do know that a gym set arrives the mm-hmm. the infamous gym set discussed at the end of part 12 and or no actually part 11 i think was when they yeah. discussed the gym set um and she sees the car in the driveway with a big bow on it and she's just so happy and filled with love we get a great shot of uh sunny jim playing on the gym set i believe too was it like dance of the swans yeah it's, playing it's one like um which was sort of an interesting musical choice for a gym set, but yeah, very like a Calliope version of it. Um, yeah, you know, sort of carnival-y. But wh- why is it an interesting choice? What what sort of insight do you have into that? I mean, so that that ballet is is pretty tragic, right? So that um, the theme that they were playing that da ya, da 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 dee, da dee, is like one of the most famous oboe solos ever and it's like the cry of the the swan princess that ballet is basically about this woman who gets turned into a swan and yada yada and the prince tries to rescue her and everything ends very sadly so that's why it's sort of a a strange choice I yes thought. So, so even though the music is like fun and jovial and you know they got the spotlight going around and the lights flashing and sunny jim is in seventh heaven uh the musical choice is somewhat ominous it, Mm-hmm. in a way definitely excellent it's great insight so from there uh janie and, and dougie are watching sunny jim have this this grand old time and uh you know she loves him and it's very sweet and then we take a hard cut to western montana <laughs> <laughs> another state so how many states do we have in the bag now got 
Nevada, Montana, Washington, South Dakota, New York. So five at least. Spend some time in Buenos Aires. <laughs> we are uh, we are all over the place. But uh, Western Montana, uh, Evil Cooper arrives in some sort of complex. There is the largest surveillance screen I've ever seen. Uh, you know, being there, there uh, we see Ray is there and a large bald man. Um, they're they're sort of talking about Cooper's arrival. Uh, well, one line I really like is Ray says to Renzo is the name of the the boss of that, and it's like you know that's the guy I killed. <laughs> and their the response is, "You didn't kill him too good, Ray." <laughs> uh, so explain explain a little bit about the how the hierarchy of this gang works to us. So there seems to be, so there's the boss uh, determined by a test, which we'll hear about in just a second. And then everyone else seems to be like a sort of thug type. There is an accountant. Yes. And there's one guy who seems to be like the rule keeper of uh, the, of the, uh, the test to become the boss. Muddy. Okay. <laughs> Mud, okay. Mud, Muddy is the voice of the, uh, He's the uh, the arbiter of the gang. <laughs> Excellent. Amelia, what is the test? So the test is arm wrestling. Perfect. Um, yeah. And, and one of the things that I love about David Lynch is that he takes something so ordinary and, and childish and he turns it into this extraordinary event. Uh, right. So you have this this gang of these like pretty tough looking guys who's hierarchy is determined by arm wrestling arm wrestling and one particular guy who just happens to be really good at arm wrestling like what are his other skills does, <laughs> does he have leadership skills does he <laughs> is he a strategic thinker like we don't know it doesn't matter <laughs> absolutely all that matters is is that you're a great arm wrestler uh yeah and i believe that this guy renzo their boss hasn't lost in like 14 years impressive um, record i i haven't arm wrestled in over 14 years <laughs> i'd say i'm right there with you yeah. <laughs> right and so uh yeah everyone's kind of snickering at cooper because he's pretty tiny compared to renzo mm -hmm. um and he impassive as always sort of makes fun of the makes fun of the game they walk down into this large room with nothing in it but a table and two chairs. So they're ready. Before, mm -hmm. before we get into the actual contest, I, I want to say that the, the way that Kyle McLaughlin delivers the lines when, he's, when he says to the gang, like, what is this, kindergarten, mm -hmm. nursery school? Like, if he doesn't win an award just based on the... The sort of dismissive disgust simmering under his like placid delivery of those lines. Because like he never gets animated. Mm -hmm. He never gets frustrated. He never like smirks. But like there's in, in his voice alone, you can just hear the disgust he has for these losers. Mm -hmm. So they uh, they take their seats at the at the table in this arena. I. I was I really like this scene for a number of reasons, but but one of the things I liked it is that the way that the gang gathers around to watch the arm wrestling seemed very choreographed to me. Like every, like everybody is in a in a way that you can 
you can make out everyone in the crowd and you can see their very specific stereotypes within like within the thugs, the thug aspect of it. Like there's some there's some like vaguely ethnic stereotypes in there. You got like the guy wearing the gold chains, guy wearing <laughs> a tank top. You know, you mentioned earlier there's an accountant, like a buttoned up guy. You've got a guy that looks like he might be like some sort of like mad old dude. You've got a like a Native American looking guy. Like every everything you've ever seen in every crime movie, every stereotype is is well represented in the backdrop <laughs> of this arm wrestling match. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's it's such a for such a silly scene, it's so well thought out. Um it was just really impressive. So the the match starts, they starting positions, and uh, what what proceeds is is essentially Evil Cooper toying with Renzo. Mm-hmm. You know, he allows Renzo to push his arm down a little bit, and then he says very calmly, "Let's go back to starting positions. Starting positions is more comfortable." Um, I was wondering at this point if this was Lynch saying to us. It's a lot, you know, at the beginning of the show, thinking about what Twin Peaks would be at the starting position, what the new Twin Peaks would be is a lot more comfortable than what it probably is now. Interesting. So, I hadn't, hadn't thought about it that way. Yep, but. And so he lets him push him to the edge and then says, let's go back to starting positions. He does that, I think, three times they go back to starting positions mm-hmm. before Cooper slams his arm down on the table, stands up, punches him in the face caves his whole head in and wins you know now he's the boss but he doesn't want to be the boss right doesn't need to be the boss um so but what he does want is ray that was what that was what cooper got if he won the match so now he has ray and he gets to extract some information from ray um we learn from ray a number of things uh that philip jeffries is the person who hired him to kill Dirty Cooper. Uh, we learned that the prison thing was all a setup. That you know, R- R- if Ray was let out of prison, that he would get to stay free if he killed Dirty Cooper. Um, and then he also says to Cooper that I think the line that stands out the most here was like, "You've got something inside that they want." Mm-hmm. Was the quote? And are they like, is that Bob? like the the evil inside Cooper, because it's no longer there. At least we don't think it's there. He still seems to be, have supernatural powers and uh, placidity, but he doesn't have Bob with him anymore, I don't think. I had if, wondered if it was uh, Garmin Bozia. That's also, he's, he's probably loaded with that. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've seen him expel a lot of it, and he's still kicking. No um, kidding. So he's probably got more. Um, but... In all of this, Ray reaches into his pocket and produces the Owl Cave Jade Ring. Mm-hmm. So the ring shows up again. There's also some coordinates involved, uh, you know. And in the midst of all of this this madness, um, Cooper has Ray put the the ring on his uh, left hand ring finger, very specifically before he kills him. Uh, Richard Horn shows up as well. <laughs> Before he shows up, I'd just like to point out two things I really like about this scene. First of all, when Cooper goes to interrogate Ray, 
Ray's like, oh, we can talk about this and starts to run. And Cooper just like shoots him in the kneecap. He's like, you know, I'm done with this. I'm done with you. (laughs) (laughs) You're staying right here. And my other favorite thing about the scene is when the accountant just randomly walks in and goes, do you need any money? Yes. Yeah. He (laughs) he, he knows his role. He's very good at his job. Right. And Cooper's like, like, no, No. what? No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So those are, those are my two favorite details about this scene perfect so uh the within the interrogation we see richard horn show up and and watch the scene we learn that philip jeffries is at a place called the dutchman's Mm -hmm. um and then when ray is killed we see him in the black lodge he disappears the ring you know the the uh the ring is placed back onto the table within the black lodge and we'll probably see it again some somehow some way somebody's going to end up wearing that ring i feel like the the end game for evil cooper is that somebody's got to put that ring on him to get him back where he belongs i completely agree okay excellent anything else on this scene this was one of the more uh like action movie scenes in this in this so far like the the you know there's there's a handful of arm wrestling movies have you ever seen an arm wrestling movie amelia have you ever seen over the top uh no i haven't so i'll tell you quickly about over the top it's a it's a movie from the 80s starring sylvester stallone i forget his name in the movie but it's like you know like a strong guy or something like that (laughs) right (laughs) but in one of the scenes in over the top they're arm wrestling and on either side where the hand would come down, there's a scorpion, <laughs> which is pretty intense. Right. Um, from from this scene in Western Montana, we zip back to Las Vegas to the Las Vegas Police Department. The detectives Fusco are arranging a Sunday dinner with their mother, but only if there's no homicides. <laughs> Fat chance of that happening. Um, in the mean and also in the background there there's this like this wild scene happening off camera where this woman is screaming and fighting at the police and peeing on the floor <laughs> and then she gets a knife <laughs> and meanwhile the detectives are just like meh what are you going to do um we finally get the payoff on them craftily retrieving Dougie's prints what do they learn about Dougie they learn that Dougie is a long-lost FBI agent. Yeah, yeah. and they, they who, dismiss that pretty much right away. Who also recently escaped from a federal prison. Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. That's the part I forgot. <laughs> and they're just like, well, that's a big fucking mistake. <laughs> they crumple it up, throw it away. So I, I suspect that will probably be the last we see of the Fuscos, like this... We, you know, for a while they were like our best hope to make this connection to, to Dougie and Cooper and bring it all together. But no, no, they just, uh, they had the goods and they threw it away. End of the line. End of the line. Sorry, Fuscos. Uh, meanwhile, Tony shows up looking for another detective, a crooked detective looking for poison. He's gonna, he's gonna try to, he's gonna try to take out Dougie. He needs some poison to do it. He's got 24 hours, as we heard earlier. So um, Tony is in 
dire straits, very pathetic. He's in trouble. He's looking for a way out. He's going to kill Dougie. From here, we 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 get we we go back on the road with with Chantal and Hutch. <laughs> um, they're driving. I, I presume they're driving through Utah, is it, or, or maybe towards Utah. But they have this really great conversation about Mormons, um, specifically like all the things they don't do, and then the fact that you know they can have like six or ten wives, according to Hutch. <laughs> <laughs> And the last line of their conversation about Mormons is Chantal saying, funny, there's not more of them. <laughs> I guess it's the drinks. <laughs> you know, it's a pity that Chantal and Hutch are like murderers because I find them incredibly likable. This is and this is a point like I, I suppose I could hold this point to next week because we do get a lot of them in. Uh, we get more of them in part 15 as well. So we're. You and I, full disclosure, have both seen part 15 as we're recording parts 13 and 14 tonight. Um, but they are probably the most functional couple in the history of Twin Peaks. Maybe out, <laughs> maybe outside of like the Haywards. Like they really seem to have an affinity for each other. They understand what the others want and they take care of them. So they, they, they take care of each other. It's really, they're really quite sweet. Yes. Yeah, they're quite sweet. While being, you know, cold-blooded super killers. Uh, after that little little uh, visit with them there, we go back to Dougie's office. He's outside. Janie has dropped him off in his fancy BMW. Anthony is waiting for him in the lobby. But before, <laughs> before he gets in, he smacks into the door. He's totally baffled. He has to wait for somebody to open the door for him. Just terrific. Just terrific. Oh man, I feel like like Kyle MacLachlan is going to have a uh, a fear of doors after this show because he has had to run so many of them. Yep. Yeah, it like what a joy. Like you know, we've been with Dougie now, so this is episode thirteen. We've been with him for eleven episodes at this point. Like we met him in part three, and I remember very distinctly thinking in like part six, like oh. When are we going to get Cooper? Mm-hmm. And now I'm just, I'm just happy to hang out with Dougie. <laughs> like he's, he's so good. He's so mm-hmm. good. I miss Cooper, but I understand what Dougie's, you know, I, li- I like Dougie quite a bit. Um, so this is the big scene. This is going to be Anthony trying to take out Dougie. He, uh, he goes and he buys him some coffee at Simon's coffee shop. Uh, Dougie makes the act of poisoning him very easy by getting up and leaving the table and, and going chasing cherry pie as he always does. <laughs> Anthony makes, does, pours the poison into his coffee as Dougie approaches the table. And what is Dougie struck by as he comes back to the table? It looks like the dandruff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just the dandruff. There's nothing more to it. Um, and then the really sort of haunting line, and this is a great run in the the Dougie as a superhero aspect of this story, where he's standing over Anthony, and Anthony says, like, Dougie, you should drink your coffee. And Dougie very placidly says, your coffee? Yes. And Anthony just falls apart. <laughs> Starts crying, he gets up from the table, dumps the poison in the, in the uh, urinal in the bathroom, throws the mug away. Guy taking a pee next to him says, that bad, huh? 
but but you know, Dougie has easily thwarted Anthony without without even breaking a sweat. Oh man, can't kill that guy. Nope. He is undefeated. That Dougie. From there we get a quick jump to Twin Peaks. Uh Becky calls Shelly at the diner. Steven is going through some stuff. And Shelly invites Becky up to the double R for some nice cherry pie and a big scoop of ice cream, whipped cream. I, I gotta say that Shelly did not seem overly sympathetic uh, in this scene. It's true. She had to like, she kind of had to like be a mother later. Like she was like, ah, oh, oh, my kid is having a hard time. What should I do? Like, yeah, I, I agree with you totally. Like she was om- like almost dismissive at the beginning mm-hmm. of it. And then at the end, she sort of like, circles back and finds a you know a way to nurture her child right it was just kind of interesting yeah so from twin peaks the double r we go back anthony is in battle and bud's office he's confessing to his crime dougie compels him to confess (laughs) anthony says i want to confess and dougie says confess (laughs) (laughs) and anthony shrinks again um you know this is an interesting dynamic here because, like, it's sort of like good cop, bad cop in a way that, like, I feel like Bushnell's being bad cop and Dougie is good cop, but Dougie is still, like, way more menacing to Anthony than than Bushnell. In well, Dougie scene. is still, like, absent cop. Yes. You know, <laughs> I don't think that he has an intention to be good or bad or otherwise. I like the line that Anthony says in this scene, I only want to die or change, which is a callback to Lynch, Gordon Cole saying they can they can change their hearts or they can die mm-hmm. in regards to um, to Denise early. That was like part. That was like part two, part two, very early on. Yeah, they can change their hearts or die. So we've got we've got this option here. Like you're faced. We've got, you know, a couple of times the option is you can change or you can die. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Um, so Anthony is going to come clean to his crimes in some way, shape or form. Interesting to see how that all plays out. Uh, skip back to Twin Peaks. We are in the double R again. Bobby comes looking in for Shelly. Doesn't find Shelly, but who does he find, Amelia? He finds Big Ed and Norma. Big Ed. Big Ed with his cool haircut. Yeah, he, he looks, looks great. He looks like a million damn dollars, that Big Ed. <laughs> like, he's, he's lean, he's mean. Um, he's, you know, he's palling around with Norma. I love Norma's booth. I like that there's a lamp in it. Mm-hmm. It's just very homey. Um, so we... One thing that really stood out to me in this scene, we'll get into the details of the scene and we'll meet Walter, but there's a jarring moment in this scene where Bobby sits down and he's talking about his day and he talks about this message he got from his dad earlier that day. And it seems like a lot more time would have passed between the This is the Chair episode, which I think was part 11 right? Uh, yeah. 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 I think it was. Yeah. Cause part, part 10 is Laura's the one. So there's like a whole episode. Oh, and between... 12 was let's rock. Yeah. 12 was let's rock. And, and it just seems like, like 
as we get later into this show, I don't think we can trust time anymore. Like the storylines are clearly on different. They're not happening concurrently. Mm-hmm. And it's very jarring. Um, this is again, when we get into part 15 next week, there's another, there's another weird time skip aspect of things, but like, yeah, they're just, it, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of collapsing in on itself. This the the chronology is, is getting harder and harder to find. Um, but, but interestingly, I think in some ways it doesn't matter, right? Because I think, I suspect that we will eventually converge at Twin Peaks and at that time. Everything will, will happen at the same time. But up until then, I mean, I just, I don't know. I feel like Twin Peaks, like you said, has very rarely put a timestamp on anything. Right. So I don't, I don't think that a line is quite the goal. I think you're, I think that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a it's a maddening effect. Like the the longer the show goes, the more I enjoy it, but the crazier it makes me feel. Yes. Right? Like you're just trying to hold all these threads in your head and some of them matter and some of them don't and there's always new characters coming and it's it's wonderful. Uh we in this scene learn that Norma has franchised the double R. She is in business with this this guy named Walter. Walter. What does his last name is like? Like Goodlaw or something like that. Oh, interesting. I didn't pick yeah. up on that. Yeah, I saw that in the credits. I don't think I have that quite right, but I know that Law was hmm. in there, which I thought was a very interesting. It is interesting choice. It's not like a palindrome, right? It's not like Walter Retlaw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, <we>? no. <laughs> um. So so there's some business stuff. We also learned that Norma is in a, a a romantic relationship with Walter, which Big Ed does not like because, you know, Big Ed loves Norma. Obvi. Um, there's a great scene where like Big Ed and, and Bobby retreat to their own booth. And as Walter and Norma are talking, you can see Big Ed like glaring over. <laughs> and a few times like Norma casts a glance his way. But there's some really interesting lines that walter says in here um so the double r franchises are doing great all except for the flagship station or the flagship restaurant which is the twin peaks branch why is the twin peaks branch not doing well because norma is spending too much on pies and not charging enough yeah that's blasphemy there's there's nothing in the world i want more than to have a piece of pie from that place absolutely I um so she's losing money, but two lines that Walter says, which I think are are really interesting and really may I think paint him as an like as an adversary to the Lynchian way of doing things. The the first line he says is love doesn't turn a profit, mm-hmm. which is really cynical. And the second line is tweaking the formula, you know, for consistency and profitability. Yeah. Which is, those are two totally anti-Lynchian ideas, mm-hmm. you know, set in this sort of beloved, like the double R has always been a good place. Like one of the places in Twin Peaks where nothing bad happens. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, when when he first walked in, I was like, you know what, Norma, good for you, you know, good for you for expanding and, and doing all of this. But as you've mentioned before, 
new characters, um, they always, they establish their character right away. And I think those lines, especially, you just see Walter and you're like, man, what a, what a sleazy business guy with yes. like nothing else going on. Yep. Yeah. He's, he's good with an iPad and some figures. Somehow he's worked his way at enormous heart. She, you know, we know that outside of big edge, she's got some questionable taste in men. Um, yeah, it's great to be back with Big Ed. It's hard to see him still pining over Norma. Uh, we've talked a lot about the secret history of Twin Peaks. One of the most lovely bits of that book is a section that is very clearly written by Dale Cooper telling the story of Norma and Big Ed, Aww. which is really wonderful, just very, very lovely. Um so something to look forward to if you haven't read it yet. I, you know, I know Amelia, you haven't. Highly recommend it. Um, I should have brought you my copy when we were together last time. Find a way to get. I'll find a way to get it to you. Okay. Make that happen. Uh, so we leave the double R and we visit Run Silent, Run Drapes. Nadine is sitting in front of her computer drinking her drink that she always seems to be drinking when Doctor Amp drives by and sees the golden shovel on display uh very expertly hung behind the completely silent drape runners or drapes he stops he gets out he rings the doorbell they have this moment between them um it seems in a way as if dr jacoby slash dr amp has like an affinity for nadine he remembers the last time he saw her Right, which was, and and the scene is like just sort of an everyday grocery store scene. Yes, like I, you know, um, the store seven seven years ago. So seven years ago, she had dropped a potato. (laughs) (laughs) She's picking it up. Um, So they have this this moment between them where they, you know, she proclaims that I'm your most loyal foot soldier. Or shoveler. Uh, she's also very excited to point out that her drapes are completely silent. Yes. Yeah. She's she takes great pride in her her creation there. Um, a very nice scene. Like these two have been linked through this long run of the show. Like we've seen her watching him from the beginning and proclaiming like he's so beautiful. Uh, so to see them come together in this way and kind of have this like almost like very sheepish, awkward moment between them. Like you can't really tell if there's a romantic connection there, but there's certainly a lot of admiration. Um, They're happy to see each other. Uh, Sticking in Twin Peaks. I think we're in Twin Peaks for the rest of the episode here. We visit the Palmer household where Sarah has drunk all of her booze, all of her Bloody Mary mix. She's watching a, a boxing match, an old timey boxing match, and something very peculiar is happening while she watches this match. Can you can you describe what's happening? Right. So um as we talked about in, in Twin Peaks, there are often these sort of repetitions and redundancy. The scene is no different. Um so there'll be there's a section of the match and you'll hear the announcer sort of start to speak and clearly you know, the match goes on and then the bells ring and then there's sort of like a sound and the, um, the scene starts over. So I counted 
many times it repeats. I counted eight repeats okay. in this scene. Eight repeats. And then the last time, the, the loop kind of breaks at the end, doesn't it? Like there's an abbreviated... It's, you know, the first the first seven times it does it, it's the same thing. And then the last time it does it, like, the it seems to happen earlier <laughs> in the last one. Um, but, you know, very unnerved. It's not a... It's, it's not a scary scene. Like there's no, there's nothing to jump at. Like you're just sort of watching her, you know, dotter around and look for more booze. But like the, the sound of the electricity, that sound you mentioned, it obviously is a big signifier within Twin Peaks. And her just sort of like, you know, looking for anything to drink, looking for anything to medicate herself. Uh, a very distressing, low key, scary scene. Yeah, I mean, Sarah Palmer is a, is a crazy. Um, so I think any any scene with her is just kind of unnerving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had that scene in I believe it was in part twelve where she freaks out in the in the convenience store. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're definitely getting a heavy dose of of Sarah, and and something is definitely wrong with her. Yeah. From there, we go to wherever Audrey is. Uh, she is still not, you know, they're still not going to the roadhouse. Uh, this scene, I think, is as a continuation of the initial Audrey scene, really gives that that first scene a lot of weight um, that maybe it didn't have the first time, which we speculated on when we talked about it uh, on when we when we discussed part 12, that as her story developed, that introduction, which seemed a little strange and maybe like it wasn't. I didn't hit the way that it was intended to. Now I feel in hindsight it did. I agree. I mean, I think this scene was, was really hard to watch, I think, because in the original series, you know, Audrey is so bright and so powerful and so sure of herself. And she just seems so powerless and defenseless and confused. And, and Charlie is, is, completely manipulative and takes advantage of her. And I, I, I love the decision of, you know, that he takes advantage of her and their like, comparison, right? He's this, this small sort of and she's this like elegant woman and she is completely in his power. Absolutely, yeah. There's there's definitely some some weird like gaslighting going on between them. Uh, something that I I discovered after like going back and and checking the boards and the Reddit threads and all that. At at one point in their their first scene with them, Charlie says something like, you know, something to the effect of like, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see the future. And there's a, actually a crystal ball right on his desk. <laughs> which I think is 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 pretty good. Um couple of impactful lines in this scene. Um Audrey saying I am not me. Like she's 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 visibly vocally cracking, like, you know, having some sort of identity crisis. Uh and then very menacingly at one point Charlie says to her, "Do I have to end your story too?" Mm-hmm. And she responds to that with the episode tagline, like, what story is that, Charlie? The story of the little girl who lived down the lane. Um, 
And then the one other thing he says, she says, is like, it's like ghostwood in here, or it's like ghostwood here. So what is ghostwood? We know that's the national forest or the state forest outside of Twin Peaks. But is it possible that ghostwood is you know, also like an asylum, a psychiatric hospital, um, you know, some sort of recovery place? Like she, we know she was in a coma. Is mm-hmm. there is Ghostwood a is is Ghostwood a you know a place beyond the forest? You know, well, in the series, that land was a big point of contention, of course, between Ben Horn and Catherine Martell, and I think that those ideas of of an asylum or something are very plausible because perhaps someone got a hold of that land and did something with it. Yes, but you know, I I suspect that this is one. Of that we probably won't ever find out what happened, who got it, um, etc. Understood. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, the Ghostwood Country Club does not, you know, we don't think that exists. So, yeah, something's got to be there. Uh, from there, we end this episode, as we do with most episodes, with a musical number at the Roadhouse. <laughs> but this one is a particularly interesting bit of nostalgia it's trolling via fan service. Like if all the things that people were clamoring for the show to bring back, <laughs> how high on the list was James singing just you? <laughs> I think probably negative. <laughs> probably negative. Yes. Oh my gosh. It it started and I just I mean I was sitting there just yelling no, no. at my left. And there's also this this <laughs> this creep creepy aspect of it is that he has like the Donna and Maddie backup singers yeah. on stage, yeah. like the two brunettes, two young brunettes. But, who look totally vacant. Yes. You know, you know, they could they could be drugged or whatever and people are like we find out is Renee is like swooning over this. Yes. And yes. it's just, oh God, it's so terrible. And we've seen <laughs> so many great little interviews in Twin Peaks. I was so disappointed. Yeah. More than disappointed. I was just like mad. It's disappointing, <laughs> but at the same time, like you can see the the wink and the nod. Right. Like, you know, like, oh yeah, we brought this back. Ugh. Like we we have spent 11 hours with the hero of the show trapped inside of a mind that doesn't work or isn't where it is. But in, in along with that, you get just you one more time. My God. So that, that brings us to the end of part 13. The episode credits uh, end with big Ed in the gas farm, eating some soup burning some paper who knows what was on that paper maybe a letter he wrote to norma maybe the receipt from the double r like any relic of his time with norma is too painful for him uh one thing that's interesting about this scene uh, another something I, I found on the internet the the very faint reflection of ed within the glass front of the gas farm is is off time so there's a scene where like Ed looks out towards the, you know, towards the road and you can see he's just looking out there, but his reflection in the mirror or in the, in the window is eating the soup. Oh, bizarre. Yeah. So again, more like 
doubling, weird time, people trapped in loops, some sort of, you know, like things aren't well in Twin Peaks from a psychic standpoint. Mm-hmm. But lots. have they ever been? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a it's a place of great great evil. Um, so that's part thirteen. That's pretty pretty good episode. A great recovery from from part twelve. I thought and an episode that added a lot to part to part twelve. Like I think if you take those two as a piece, um, especially the, given the like the Audrey thread, uh, there's there's a lot to like happening there. Um, you ready for part 14? I'm ready. Okay. So part 14, I think is the most dense episode. I don't know if you have that, that idea. There are, uh, four main scenes, very long scenes where a lot happens in those scenes. And there's a lot to note in those scenes, a lot of imagery, a lot of things we've seen before. Um, I say we just uh, jump right in. Sounds good to me. Very good. Uh, Part 14 tagline is we are like the dreamer. We start in Buckhorn. Gordon Cole is calling the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department looking for Sheriff Truman. He gets Lucy on the phone (laughs) and he says to Lucy, Lucy, you've been there all these years. And how does Lucy reply? Well, I've gone home sometimes and Andy and I. (laughs) gone on some vacations (laughs) and she mentions one specific do you remember where the one specific destination uh, was it bora 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 (laughs) (laughs) we went to bora bora once oh lucy (laughs) what a lovely life the two of those the two of them have together yes Uh, never change yes (laughs) yeah they're so they're so loving they're the they're the good version of chantal and hutch yes uh so we get uh, and, and I like Cole's response. Like Cole has no response to that. Like maybe he doesn't hear her. Maybe he's just like, what is this ding bat talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, he's looking for Sheriff Truman. He gets Frank Truman expecting Harry go through a little song and dance about Harry being in the doctor's care. Um, and Frank relays the information to him that they have some compelling evidence from Laura Palmer's diary that there may be two Coopers. Mm-hmm. Cole receives this information, intimates that he knows something about it, but can't say anything to Truman. Mm-hmm. From there, we stay in Buckhorn. We drop in on Tammy and Albert. Tammy's getting the uh, the Blue Rose team on boarding. And uh, we learn... We we learn about the very first Blue Rose case. Can you can you explain the first Blue Rose case to us, Amelia? So the first Blue Rose case is two agents, two young agents, uh, were going to investigate uh, a murder. And she's playing from a gunshot wound to the abdomen, and she says, "I am the Blue Rose." or I am like the blue rose. Um, and then she promptly dies, disappears. There's another woman in the corner of the room, um, who had the gun, had dropped the gun, backed away and is now cowering, crying, that sort of thing. It's also Lois Duffy. Um, we, and as Lois Duffy is awaiting trial for murdering, I guess herself, uh, she hangs herself. And the two agents on this first case 
were Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries. There we go. The beginning of the Blue Rose Task Force. Uh, the uh, Albert asks Tammy, like, what's the one question you should ask? And it's the question is, like, what does the Blue Rose mean? And Tammy shows a surprising amount of, of depth in the scene. Uh, you know, we get we get we get a look at why she was chosen for the Blue Rose Task Force because she she follows this line of thinking: the Blue Rose does not occur in nature. And then she brings up this concept, which I had never heard before. Um, she says it's like it's a tulpa. Like she she talks about this this idea that um, do you know what a tulpa is? You've heard that term. So a tulpa. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the atalpa is a a being or object created through spiritual or mental powers. So essentially, it's it's focusing your thoughts so much that you create like a tangible being. That's what mm-hmm. a that's what atalpa is. So that's like her her idea of maybe how there was two Lois Duffies. Interesting. I think David. Is super into the concept of tulpas. Yes, yeah, I'm sure he's right now. He's trying to to create a tulpa <laughs> somewhere. Uh, so we get this really deep scene between Albert and Tammy, and then it's interrupted by Cole walking in the room, giving a thumbs up and saying, "Coffee time." <laughs> uh, Diane comes into the room. Uh, they interrogate her a little bit, uh, asking about the time, the night she spent with Cooper, wondering if he mentioned Major Briggs. We find out that she did, or that he did. We also find out in a, an in- interesting bit of uh, storytelling here, a way of, of disseminating information. They have the ring that was found in Major Briggs, and they read the inscription, and the the inscription is like, you know, with love to Dougie, with love, Janie E. And we learn that Janie E and Diane are half sisters. But they're estranged half sisters. They are which, estranged half sisters. Is not surprising with Diane's rather caustic personality. Yes. Yeah. I don't think Diane has many friends, keeps, keeps many friends. And, and I could definitely see her and Janie butting heads. Oh, absolutely. So I, I do wonder if we'll get a scene with the two of them. I feel like we kind of have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so, too. So with this information, Cole gets on the horn with the Las Vegas FBI <laughs> agency. <laughs> uh, the scene is perfect. They want him to find Douglas Jones. It says to him that they could be armed and dangerous. And he uses the line, put caution in the shotgun seat. <laughs> <laughs> And so after the call with Cole, we we stay in the, the Las Vegas FBI branch. And one of the, the younger, like the junior agent says to his boss, like 23 Douglas Jones, how are we going to know which one's the right one? And his boss just flips out on him. <laughs> how many times have I told you this is what we do in the FBI? <laughs> and it's a sort of crazy thing happening there. Um, and then my favorite, this might be my favorite Gordon Cole line of all time. So he gets off the phone with them. They're, they're all kind of like sitting there silently thinking about the implications of what they've learned. 
And Gordon Cole very frankly says, last night I had another Monica Bellucci dream. (laughs) (laughs) As if this is something he's discussed with his colleagues many, many times. Right, right. And the look that Tammy gives him right after he says that is just priceless. Yeah, she kind of gives him like this leer. Uh, Albert, Albert, like, guffaws (laughs) guffaws <laughs> off camera at this um but so he has a monica bellucci dream amelia tell us about the monica bellucci dream so it's all black and white um gordon is meeting monica bellucci and some friends at a cafe in paris for coffee uh cooper is there but he can't see his face and we get an image of cooper that's like up to his chin um and so they're drinking coffee. It was all, it's all very pleasant. And then Monica says to Gordon, um, let's see, she says to Gordon, we are like the dreamer. Oh, what is it? We are like the dreamer who lives in the dream. It is. We are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside a dream. Okay. Okay. And then the last line is, but who is the dreamer? Hmm. Hello. Hello. All right. So let's uh, jump right back in. You're talking about the the Twin Peaks universe. Yeah. So um, the Twin Peaks universe just has so many layers. And I think to, you know, then further introduce dream layers into it. I mean, how do you, how are we going to keep it all straight? Uh, Who's the dream? Who's the dreamer? I mean, it just, it's absolute mind boggling. Do you think David Lynch saw Inception and was like, yeah, but more and more confusing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do. And yeah. I think that he also just likes to, you know, pay credit to himself in the show. I mean, I think we've seen that a number of times. And yeah. clearly, I think he is the dreamer. Yeah, right? absolutely. He, Yeah, we're, we're all we're all in his head at mm-hmm. this point. Like he 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 spits out these images and I don't necessarily know that he's it's not a charitable act, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like it's like, oh, I have these great ideas. Share them with me. It's like, no, here's my ideas. I'm going to pull you into them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting like that. So uh, after she delivers this these lines to him, uh, an uneasy feeling settles over Cole. She mentions that she should look back or he should look back. Um, he looks back and as he looks back, he sees his younger self. But before we get into that scene, a very clever internet sleuth, like did like a Google street view and found the cafe where they were sitting and the space behind him, the space he looks back towards is an art gallery where he very recently had a bunch of his artwork posted or you oh, know, no on, way. on display so like he was sort of looking you know looking back in a dream within a dream but also looking at a place where he was like you know putting his wares out for everybody to see it's a very lynchian thing to do like oh man in my show i'm looking at my art <laughs> more layers yes exactly so he sees this scene play out it's the it's the philip jeffrey scene from fire walk with me uh, Phil Jeffries comes into the office after being disappeared and then promptly leaves. Um, there's some weird overdubbing of David Bowie's voice in this scene mm-hmm. um, and th- and a change as well. I don't have the exact line that he says to Cooper, but like he says, like, who do you think that is there? 
or something like that. And he points to Cooper. Um, and it's like, it changes to like, who do you think this is here? Mm -hmm. Like a, this and a, that change. Um, but so he, he finishes describing this dream and then this dream within the dream or this memory within this dream. And he and Albert had both completely forgot that that happened. Which I think is curious because in Firewalk with me, it's like Philip Jeffries was never there, right? When they Correct. go and they look at the security camera footage and they can't find um, Jeffries unless Cooper is standing there with him in the frame. Right. Wild. <laughs> Very. Very. Crazy. Just crazy. Um, so big scene to start the episode. I think, I mean, it's like a 15, almost 20 minute scene in, in Buckhorn there. Uh, cool dream, you know, Monica Bellucci dreams, I guess, you know, how, how do you think, do you think David Lynch had a Monica Bellucci dream and is like, yeah, I want to do that more. Let's, uh, <laughs> yep, let's, yep. Bring, let's bring that into existence. Absolutely. I, not a doubt in my mind. <laughs> and the one thing I like about that is, you know, I think when you hear when you hear Cole, uh, when you hear Albert laugh about having a Monica Bellucci dream, you sort of get this idea like Monica Bellucci is like this very voluptuous, beautiful woman. Um, and like in the dream, like she's very modestly dressed. There's not, you know, it, if you if you would imagine somebody having a Monica Bellucci dream, it probably would be a little bit more risque than a, a pleasant, like her bringing friends and having a nice cup of coffee on a Parisian sidewalk. Yes. Um, and so like, again, like even as silly as this idea is like, there, there's this like twisting of, of expectations within that. Um, from here, we go to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. They're packing up, getting ready for uh, their trip to Jackrabbit's Palace, uh, going through the, the sandwich orders. There is, I believe, turkey and cheese, ham and cheese, roast beef and cheese, and then just cheese. <laughs> and who ordered the just cheese? Andy. Of course. Of course. Just cheese for Andy. No roast beef. Uh, but something big happens in this scene, something that you and I have been waiting for for the longest time. Tell us what happens in the uh, the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department conference room. Well, Chad sucks. Chad sucks. And we haven't Chad established. Gets Chad gets arrested. Ah, so cathartic. My and on the rewatch, the thing I like about it most is as they invite Chad into the room, and Sheriff Truman sort of like stands like with his back against the wall, and you can be, see him very slyly like produce a pair of handcuffs, <laughs> almost like sleight of hand. Like all of a sudden they're in his hand. Um, and Chad has that like, like he knows he's caught, but he's still just like a petulant jerk. Yes. <laughs> There's no, you know, he's not contrite at all. He doesn't try to explain himself. He just tells him they're making a big mistake as they escort him down into the cells. So, you know, Chad sucks. They got him. Thank goodness. Thank God. So from here, our 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 crew, they go to find Jack Rabbit's palace. And Amelia you just went to Washington state. I did. And, and I was, I, I was very like, I, I, when you were sending me pictures from your trip, I was like, Oh man, she's really going to like part 14 because she's been to those places. 
Absolutely. I mean, it, it was wild. So right. So I spent a week basically hiking with my mom in the Olympic State Park, which if you ever get a chance to go, oh, it's gorgeous. It's fantastic. Um, but these forests out there are like, I mean, they're prehistoric. The These trees that are hundreds of years old and it's you know, a lot of the trees have fallen and the way that these temperate rainforests work is that there's so much rain that basically like moss grows on the dead trees and then trees grow out of that. So oh. there's trees on trees on trees <laughs> and there's like so many ferns and these um, plants with massive leaves covering the ground that you really can't even see where the ground is. It's, it's just absolutely wild. Excellent. Yeah, that's some great... Great context. I, I will go to Olympia National Park based on your recommendation to see this Woo-hoo. this madness. <laughs> um, so they're they're going there. Uh, they're going to Jackrabbit's Palace. Bobby is leading them. He knows where he's going. He's been there before. I really like. We've talked a lot about how great Bobby is in this, but I sort of like that he's leading this group of men, especially leading Sheriff Truman and Hawk, who are like these, mm-hmm. you know almost super heroic men that Bobby is able to hold court with these guys after being kind of the sniveling punk that he was in the original series is really, really nice. So he leads them to Jackrabbit's palace. He talks about telling tall tales there with his father. And then it's time for them to go 253 yards due East of Jackrabbit's palace. And as they're walking through their winding, winding forest, climbing over ridges, they come upon a clearing where there's some smoke, there's flashing lights, and there is the woman we met in part three, I believe, mm-hmm. with the the sort of scarred face. Uh, her name in the credits now is 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 like Naidu, Naidu, N A I D O O, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she's in some sort of distress. She's lying naked on the ground. There's a pot of Garmin Bozia or scorched oil there, like almost like a like a little mini volcano of it, like this little pustule of ickiness. Um, and Andy really takes charge here. He's he's the one who goes to the woman's aid on the floor or on the on the floor of the woods and uh, uh, very like surreal scene. And it's about to get weirder. Mm-hmm. So. Sheriff Truman looks at his watch and says, it's 2.53, fellas. And then what happens? So a vortex in the sky opens up, similar to the one that we saw with Cole and Albert in, was it part 12? I think part 11. Part 11. Okay. Um, so similar to the vortex. And my initial thought was like, oh, no, they're going to get sucked in and they'll meet the woodsmen. And that that will be the end for our heroes. Um Instead, Andy ends up in the giant's living room. Um, we now find out that the giant is called the Fireman, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is very, very appropriate and harkens back to Hawk's map and the fire symbols. And of course, the tagline, there is fire where you are going. Yes. So Andy is in with the Fireman and he is given, gifted some sort of like little pot or kettle, something with a spout and backward smoke swirling mm-hmm. around uh, as the smoke 
swirls around Andy. He looks up. There's like a like a portal or like a like a porthole, I guess is a better <laughs> a better term for it. Um, and Andy has these this vision or series of visions, very rapid fire. Um, I'm going to go through each one here. So he looks up. The first thing he sees is the experiment. He sees it as uh, as uh, the uh, the kids that their names escape me now. Um, I don't remember. Uh, them. Yeah, part part one. Heads caved in. Sam was Sam one. Oh, of them? Sam and Tracy. Sam and Tracy. Yes, was there. Uh, so the experiment, like as when we saw the experiment in the box there, we then see the the Bob spew from part eight. You see the woodsman outside of the convenience store, also from part eight, as well as the got a light guy, oh. which, you know, if I ever see him again, it'll be too soon. Uh, some scary power lines. We see the the screaming, like the screaming, crying girl from the from the pilot of the original series when she finds out that Laura Palmer is dead running across the school car- courtyard. We see red curtains. We see Laura with the angels. Which I think is a fire walk with me reference. Yes. We see Naidu, the um the woman on the, the forest floor. We see both Coopers sort of like together and then separate. Uh we see a ringing phone. <laughs> <laughs> then we see Andy like like leading Lucy somewhere and Lucy seems apprehensive. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say. We see Naidu again. And then the final thing we see is the electrical pole, the number six telephone pole. And then the smoke goes back into the kettle and Andy exits the fireman's living room. Is that a fair approximation? Yeah. I don't have anything to add. (laughs) Yeah. Big, big time download of all these images and and things we've seen. Uh, You know, interesting choice that Andy would be the guy. Right. To be there. Um you just thought it would be Hawk. I guess Hawk would have been like the odds on favorite if somebody was going to spend some time in the, I'm going to call it the white lodge. I don't know if it's the white lodge for sure. Um, but, uh, yes, really, really kind of like, a, it's fun to see Andy in that place. You know, it's great to see all of those images because I think that's very clear that like, if there are any answers to be found in this show, they're the important things were shown to Andy. Mm-hmm. Like all of the images that matter were shown to him. Um, so after that, we see our group sort of materialize back at Jackrabbit's palace, their bodies flickering in and out of existence. A lot like the woodsmen were in part eight outside of the convenience store, like time and space and matter and energy is all wonky. Uh, in the face of these vortexes, they can't quite recall what happened, but Andy is carrying Naidu and Andy is like a changed man at this point. Mm-hmm. He's a just pure leader. Like she's in trouble. We have to protect her. People are after her. Don't tell anyone. And everybody's like, okay. <laughs> I'm curious how much Andy will remember what he learned in the white lodge, because as you said, everyone else seems to have sort of lost their memory. And I'm curious if that happened to Andy as well. Yes. If, if he only has like a soul remembrance. Interesting. It'll be, yeah, it, this, this is very strange now because obviously there's like a key figure, you know, the, the there's now there's something 
specifically linking Cooper's journey to Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Like this this woman is of some sort of import. Um, they bring her back to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. She's wearing Lucy's pajamas. Uh, so, right. So Lucy gives her the pajamas. And it's just so sweet because Lucy is so concerned about whether these pajamas are good enough. And, I mean, this woman, she can't. She can't see. She can't speak. Like, your pajamas are great, Lucy. <laughs> and there's this weird story behind the pajamas. Like, they're there from that time the dog got lost in here. Right. <laughs> so it was like the dog sleeping in the pajamas. Did she stay there, like, in her pajamas to help the dog? Like, you know, <laughs> just, you know, one of those things. So, so we find here in the cell where Chad is, now we've got... We've got an I do there. And then we've got like horribly bleeding man. <laughs> who You know what? Oh, I'm, this reminded me of there's that one X-Files episode and I can't remember the name. I think it's in the third season, but it's one of the uh, like biohazard X-Files sort of monster of the week ones where this guy is doing research and he gets this like pustule on his face yes. and the, the the infected meat gets delivered and everyone has these exploding pustules and these like larva eating them that's what yeah that's what bleeding drunk man reminds yes. me of yes I, what is the name of that episode i could just picture that last scene right where, like, the Ugh. flexing pustule is like right next to scully's face or whatever or someone's it's... face yeah I think it's uh it's like one of the one of the like Latin named ones. I yes. Think. Let's see. I can't remember it. So this this mad scene, uh Chad is down there and this drunk guy and I do, and the drunk guy is repeating everything that everybody says, very, very Dougie esque. Um and uh, Chad and Andy have this showdown where like Chad makes some fun of Andy and Andy goes up to him and like shakes his finger and says, you you know, you give good cops a bad name. And, you know, drunk guy says like cops, a bad name or whatever. <laughs> uh, the name of that episode is season two, episode 22. F emasculata. OK. Is that episode? Yeah. Super, super gross. Super gross. Um, so now we've got this like motley crew in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department, <laughs> which is just terrific. I want to know how like horribly bleeding man got in there. Yes. And I have a theory. We'll get to that towards the end of this episode description. Uh, so we leave them all there. Um, she is, Nadu is apparently safe in the, uh, in the, in the, in the cell. And we visit the great Northern. We find out what Jim, what James or Jimmy as as he's introduced or as his friend knows him as his Freddie knows him. Uh, he's he's working security at the Great Northern. It's his birthday, and he's hanging out with this young English guy who's wearing a green gardening glove. Indeed. They're uh, sitting outside and cracking walnuts, and Freddie is just cracking the hell out of those walnuts. Yes, pulverizing them. <laughs> yes. And this is a really fun, like, we we get introduced to this person. He's wearing this weird glove. And he's just smashing these walnuts. And immediately we're like, oh, what's his story? <laughs> yeah. And and it feels like for a second, like we're not going to get it. But then we do. Mm-hmm. And his story is spectacular. Oh, it's so good. It's just wild. So some interesting thing, some background on the scene. The guy who plays Freddy is not an actor, 
but someone who released a like who was like a viral YouTube sensation and he's a he's a voice guy. So okay. he he does like all of these voices. There's this video I watched of him today. He does like 69 different dialects and accents and from all over the world. And uh and the very first one he does in this video is like this cockney accent that is clearly Freddie from here. Um the the long and the short of it the story is uh he's walking home, he's drunk, his life's a waste. He sees a portal. He winds up sitting across from the fireman. The fireman tells him to go to this place. There's going to be a single gardening glove there. Uh, he, you know, he's to buy the glove and put it on. That's his destiny. Uh, at this point, I don't know if you caught it. I didn't catch it on the first viewing, but I certainly caught it on the second viewing is he breaks into like a day in the life by the Beatles. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in the middle of it. And in an episode all about dreams. So he does like, you know, woke up got a bed, drag a comb across my head. And then he kind of chuckles. But if he, mm -hmm. if he, if he carries on, if we get, to, if we carry through that, that, you know, those lyrics, they end with, and somebody spoke and I went into a dream. Oh it's like yeah. How you course. get into there. So I thought that was, you know, pretty cool. Like when I, when I, cause that's, I mean, day in the life, like that's like, one of the songs, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the, obviously the Beatles have dozens of the songs, but a day in the life is one of the sort of truly mind blowing contributions they made. Um, so it was really funny to just like, so you see these two guys chuckle about it and like clever joke. Um, the other, the other thing I like about this story is what word does he use to describe the shopkeep who won't sell him the glove? Jobsworth. Jobsworth. <laughs> <laughs> and he gives this like very specific definition of what a Jobsworth is. Like somebody who I forget the words like obstructs and you know, it's like like yeah, this very like measured definition followed by this cockney description of like, yeah, it's more than my job's worth. <laughs> yes. And the second half of the story he tells, the language he uses is so colorful and so like expressive. Like he, you know, he tackles me, it gives me a tackle that'd be fit for the for a red card. Uh I hit the cobbles and I start running. Um and I think the the best one is after he like he's got the glove on his hand and he punches the guy to get away from him, and he looks back and he's like, by the way, his head was hanging. I could tell I snapped his Gregory. Yes. And and what I learned about this is that in in Cockney there's uh they do like these weird rhyming aspects to their slang. So the 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 description I read was that so Gregory would refer to Gregory Peck and Peck rhymes with neck. So that's the that's the steps that you go from like neck to peck to Gregory, snapped as Gregory, snapped as neck. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, really fun scene with uh, with Freddie. We've seen Freddie before. We saw him all the way back, I think, in episode one or part one with him and James walking into the roadhouse. But I didn't know if notice if he had the glove on in that scene. I wasn't I, paying attention either. Yeah, I assume that he, he must have because mm -hmm. if you take it off, he starts bleeding, as we learn. Do you have anything else to add about this scene? I, I uh, you know, just such a rich... Rich little tale within 
this this scene with with Jane, Jimmy and Freddie. You know, I just like I think it's so interesting because right before this, we see Andy, you know, in the White Lodge, and now this Freddie kid, and it seems like these are two of. You know, Andy's a good guy, but he doesn't have a lot going on. And I suspect it's sort of the same thing with Freddie, you know. And so I'm curious why these characters are, are chosen as our sort of emissaries of a fireman. Yes. Yeah. What's the point? You know, who, uh, you know, why, why, why are these atypical heroes being chosen for this audience with this, this, you know, harbinger or not harbinger, like a keeper of the good? Mm-hmm. We have to assume like, um, yeah, really fun scene. Uh, from there, they, they get back to work after telling the story. James got to check the furnaces. And while he's down in the bowels of the Great Northern, what what does he what's going on while he's he's going through this this creepy place? The mysterious hum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so, yeah, he gets to a door. We think maybe what's whatever's humming could be behind that door, and then it just sort of ends, as of most course. things do. <laughs> uh, then we we go to a spot we've never been before, the Elks Point Number Nine Bar. Assume that's in Twin Peaks. Uh, Sarah Palmer just out and about. She's got no booze at home, so she's got to find some, you know, out on the road, out and out on the streets. Uh, she walks into the bar, orders a. Bloody Mary, her drink of choice, and sitting a few stools down to her left, there's a guy who's who's a very like, he's very Leo Johnson. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like like people are like that are the reason that I like don't like to go to dive bars. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very menacing scene. Uh, some some really intense language used by this guy towards Sarah Palmer. He's sort of oh he, yeah. He 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 rolls up on her. He's asking her how her night is and she asks him, you know, nicely to go, you know, to, to go away. Um, and then he gets incensed and, you know, as as men like that tend to do. And he's threatening her. And in just the all time. Great, you know, the, the the line that really sets him off is he, you know, he makes him sent makes some line about eating. And she looks at him and says, or no, I don't think she's looking at him when he's when she says it. She says, mm-hmm. or, "She says I'll eat you." And this really like <laughs> menacing voice, and uh, he gets really incensed. And then she she turns to face him, and and what happens? Well, she repeats a gesture that we saw um, actually Laura make in the Black Lodge. I think back in like episode one, maybe, and she just casually takes her face off. Um, and we hear all this electricity crackling. We can sort of see the negative outline of her face. And then we see sort of a black hole with floating teeth and this, um, this very deep voice. I think it's still Sarah's, but it's sort of like her voice has gone through a voice scrambler almost saying, do you really want to fuck with this? <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. No, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, she she puts her face back on and then almost too quick to see she makes a swiping motion at this guy and he falls on the ground uh, bleeding everywhere. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She she like bites his neck off. I think is, okay. the, is the, the way that I interpret it. Some of the things like when she pulls her face off, there's all this stuff floating around in this void 
Uh, one of the things is like a left hand with the ring finger blacked out, um, creepy face, like 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 shocks of electricity that also look like a snake's tongue mm. at one point. But yeah, super unnerving. So now now we know for sure that uh, you know something's up with Sarah Palmer. She's possessed <laughs> by something. Uh, and if and if there was ever a source of Garmin Bozia in the world, it would be her. Oh, oh, most definitely. So it makes sense that like you know evil would roost in her, um, which I, I think is probably what's happening, uh, or it could be Laura. Who knows? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll see more of of Sarah Palmer uh, as we we cruise here, though. Um, so yeah, the guy is dying. He's bleeding out on the floor. The bartender comes over. She's screaming as as any normal person would in that scene. But her demeanor changes really quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the 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 bartender I think says to her like, "Oh, we're going to get to the bottom of this." And she says like this very like dismissive like, "Sure is a mystery, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> So creepy Sarah Palmer. Ugh, Ugh, yeah. Good times. Um, yes. So creepy Sarah Palmer. From there, we jump to the roadhouse. A, a, a familiar scene at the roadhouse. Two characters we've never spent any time with having a conversation. <laughs> uh, we don't know anything about. Uh, though it starts with talk of a nut house. Like you got to stay out of the nut house. You got to stay away from the nut house. Which again, maybe that lends some credence to our Ghostwood is a psychiatric hospital aspect uh, idea of things. Um, but they have this conversation, and as the conversation develops, we learn that one of the uh, participants in this conversation is the last person who saw Billy. Mm-hmm. Saw Billy with her mother, who we later find out is Tina. The um, at some point in this conversation, I don't know if you if you thought this as well, but it seems like like the the daughter of Tina is being interrogated almost by the other participant in the conversation. Like she's sort of like prying at some details. Oh, and, absolutely. And the way that she says, you know, what's your mother's name is is sort of strange. Yeah, it's like she's she's definitely fishing for something. Um, we learn that Billy came to their house. He was a bloody mess. He came in for like 10 seconds, like leaned over the sink and then ran out. Her uncle was there, but maybe he wasn't. So there's more of that not quite remembering uh, what happened, Mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, what does this mean? Like, I can't remember if he was there. Uh, My question to you, do you think Billy is the bloody guy in the... Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department cell. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah, like, he's bleeding be. from the mouth and nose. He's, like, bleeding everywhere. Right. <laughs> he yeah, like, he's stopped. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, wondering if uh, if that could be could be Billy. Um, in the in the credits, was he was listed as, as drunk? I right? think just drunk. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that that still leaves that option open. Mm-hmm. And um, the girl's mother, Tina. Tina was who Charlie called. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yes. Good. <laughs> uh, the the woman, sort of the interrogator in that conversation, in real life, is David Lynch's wife. 
Oh, no way. Yeah. They they met on the set of Inland Empire, I believe, and they have a child together. Well, that's yeah. pretty cool. How about that? <laughs> Uh, and that I think that's the that's the end of the episode. We get a performance from from Lisi, I believe is her name. Uh-huh. Uh, puts on a raucous uh, rock performance that I, I enjoyed. Yeah, me too. And so uh, much exponentially better than stupid James Hurley. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess if, if James Hurley is your opening act <laughs> with his uh, his, you know, all time classic hit favorite, Just You, <laughs> and you come up with like some sweet guitar rock with a with a great band and not creepy vacant singers representing you know girls from your your teenaged past <laughs> you're in good shape great job lissy uh so i think that's it for parts oh. 13 and 14 i think so too yeah lots lots to talk about uh i'm excited to get into 15 and 16 with you next week mm-hmm. and we are like you know we've got four episodes left to discuss in the world there's three left so Today is Thursday, August 24th, which means we've got an episode on August 27th and then the last one on September 3rd. And then it's over. Like there's two. I'm so sad. I know. Like, I mean, this started like way back in May, like, like in spring (laughs) and now it's almost fall. And, uh, yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm sad to see it come to come to an end. Uh, I'm really excited. One of the one of the podcasts I like, I'll give a little shout out. I like a podcast called The Watch. It's a TV podcast. Uh, they did a great interview with Matthew Lillard a few weeks ago. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet, but on their episode that they they posted today, they have David Nivens, who is the president of Showtime, talking about like the effort of bringing Twin Peaks back. So it'd be really interesting to hear the Twin Peaks story from like a network executive. Oh, um, nice! Because like this is clearly not a traditional show mm-hmm. right i mean it's it's it, um, unless you're really invested in twin peaks and david lynch it's probably not going to be something you go out of your way to watch absolutely yeah and not only is there like weirdness and a lot of weirdness but there's also like a lot of sex and drugs and bad language and just i mean like pretty pretty heavy stuff going on too yeah Yes. So wonderful. Well, Amelia, this was a great, great time. Uh, <laughs> if you, uh, if you, should you meet the fireman uh, until we, until the next time we talk, follow his uh, instructions implicitly and you'll probably get some rad superpowers. Excellent. Very good. Excellent. Well, I'll let you know. Yeah. We will talk to you next time. <laughs> Sounds great. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
gentlemen, to Weevil.